Hello, I'm Huron Zani and welcome to Brandenburg One. Thank you for joining me for more Baroque Now. As always in this new podcast, I'm joined by one of the inspiring musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. With me is principal Baroque flute and recorder, the lovely Melissa Farrow. On Brandenburg One, you can find her performance of the final movement from J.S. Bach's Partita in A minor for solo flute. Today, Melissa and I are going to be talking about that bourrée anglaise, but also concert programming, dancing masters, and her many, many instruments. Thank you, Melissa, for coming and joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you sitting across from me. Oh, it's really great to be here, Hugh. We've had several chats about your instruments previously in private, yes. uh, but uh, it's certainly something that I know you're passionate about, and maybe you could start by helping our audiences get to know what instruments you play with the orchestra. So I know it's more than one, more than two. Just how many are there? <laughs> well, I actually play about six Baroque flutes with the orchestra. Um, unbelievably. There's not just one type of Baroque flute that you can have. There are many models of instruments. Um, so not only Baroque flutes, but then there's the classical flutes, Mm. So these are often at a different pitch and then you get the more complex keyed instruments. So I've got a couple of those. Then we, if we play romantic repertoire, I need to have something to cover kind of the first half of the 19th century. So I have a beautiful Liebel flute with nine keys. Um, then, of course, there's recorders and there's a whole gamut of those. Uh, there's piccolos. So the list goes on. So probably all up. I don't know, 20 something instruments. No, yes, actually. I, I was trying to keep count there, uh, yeah. keep track of all of that. That's, that's yeah. quite a, a lot. It is. Um, are you the most uh, instrument prolific performer of the, of the Brandenburg? Is that a title or Ooh, something? I didn't realise it was a competition. Uh, I, I possibly could be. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I know that a lot of wind players have, have to play various instruments. Hmm. Bassoons uh, often have to play kirtles. Um, uh, and and later bassoons, for instance, oboes. Of course, there's classical oboe and there's uh, shawms and there's various other instruments attached as well. Um, but in terms of the development of the flute over time, it it was constantly developing into a mm. different instrument. Um, so there's just so many types of instruments available. It stayed pretty much the same for a long period of time. It didn't really change and hasn't really changed now. Uh, too much since the Baroque period. And we'll go into it maybe a little bit later, but the difference between the recorders that most of the audience may know and be familiar with from terrible music lessons at school (laughs) uh, and and the sorts of recorders that you and Michaela Oberg play with the orchestra. But out of all of those instruments, I can only imagine the sort of specialisation for just one of those instruments would be tantamount to the playing, say, the violin, for example. How do you manage to find the time to be hmm. so proficient? And you said uh, have to, that the wind players have to play all these instruments. Well, why is that? Mm. Oh, it's interesting. Um, I think in certain orchestras in Europe, certain historically performed orchestras in Europe, uh, you can tend to specialise in one period of music. So you mm-hmm. might just stick to Baroque oboe, for instance, and leave classical and, uh, and later oboes well alone. Mm. Um, however, 
it really helps to approach your instrument from the earlier instruments and sort of work through that way right up to um, 21st century instruments. Um, in terms of myself and learning recorders, I mean, I started learning a recorder at seven or eight years old, you know, descant like, like many other kids uh, in a class. And, um, and then from that, with the same fingerings, you can play the one, the tenor, which is, of course, you know, a whole octave lower. And then if you are game enough, you can learn the treble with a, a new pair of fingerings. And then with that, you can learn the bass. So I know as a child, I gradually learned how to play these different these uh, different instruments and learn mm. the fingerings. I had my own weird system for learning bass clef, like descant recorder fingering, but up, up a second. Uh, yeah. I, I had something in order to play in the bass clef. I just couldn't work out bass clef as a child, so I invented yeah. my own funny system. But I think a lot of recorder players just are expected to play more than one type, that's for sure. So it comes with the yeah, terrain. comes with the terrain. Hmm. And then flutes, when you play a historical flute, you quickly learn that it's not particularly black and white. Uh, you don't just have one set of fingerings. In mm. fact, you have enharmonic fingerings. You know, So B flat has a different set of finger combinations to an A sharp. So obviously for our uh, audience members that aren't so familiar with that, that musical term, mm. enharmonic fingerings, yeah. we're talking about what technically is the same note. Yes. A B flat is an A sharp. That's just... Yeah. what it is. They're the same on a piano. You you go to a piano, you play a B flat. It's exactly the same as an A sharp. Exactly. Uh, but yeah. in uh, the Baroque <laughs> world, and, and uh, actually uh, right up until uh, the 20th century, before standardization of pitch actually happened, mm. uh, this was not such a done deal. A B flat would be tempered in a way that would be different from an A sharp because of the nature mm. of the key within which B flat yeah. is um, being performed. Exactly. So on flute, you have... Uh, a B flat fingering is actually slightly higher in pitch than an A sharp fingering. Mm. So, you know, just in physical terms, you really just put down half a finger or, or an extra, extra hole um, down on the instrument. So you use your ears often to uh, find the right sort of uh, right sort of note to mm. fit into any chord or temperament. So it's a very flexible kind of um, thing to be involved with you it's not it's not black and white an, an a mm. is not an a always you have yeah. to find it with whoever you're playing with um, and whatever instrument you're playing with I get the impression uh, from speaking with a, a lot of musicians that are in this historically informed uh, performance realm uh, that it really is a case of listening, using your ears, playing together. Uh, there's a lot more communication that's happening, musically speaking, between uh, the players for every performance because to stay in tune, just to keep playing the notes that sound well together is actually not so easy as it may seem. No, definitely not. You've hinted at it. So you obviously play your instruments in a slightly different way. Each instrument has its own specific requirements, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. Yes. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the physical differences between playing all of these instruments. Mm. M many people don't realise from instrument to instrument the vast differences that they have. Um, so, for instance, when I play uh, one instrument, it has a certain 
finger spacing between the finger holes. It also has particular idiosyncrasies, so it might have an annoying tendency to be very flat on its lowest G and A. Mm. I reach for another instrument of a similar period, um, but different model. It might happen to be sharp on the low G oh, gosh. <laughs> and the low A. So each time you develop a certain type of muscle memory for each instrument, uh, a certain lip placing, a certain amount of airspeed to make um, those notes accurate, uh, accurate in pitch. Uh, also, from instrument to instrument, you need different fingering combinations in order to make the intonation work for you. Not to mention uh, the instruments that have bigger bores. Like physically, they need a lot more air. So you need to use your lungs differently. So from instrument to instrument, it's actually quite remarkable how much muscle memory is involved mm. um, from, from, from movement from one to the next. And it takes physical time to prepare mm. for each one. So often between uh, one project, which say might be on my... Uh, 415 hertz palanca flute I might really require over a week to prepare for the next instrument uh, in order to do it justice to know its intonation really well yes so what you've described sounds to me like an impossible nightmare Uh, (laughs) obviously it's not just uh, the the muscle memory itself but it's having to actively think about oh okay which instrument am I on um, Mm. and what were the specificities of, of that so that in the context of live performance where yes. you're, you've got adrenaline going and you're really following mm. and, and trying to do everything that you can in your power to play beautifully, <laughs> uh, you don't all of a sudden make the error of forgetting that that G is totally flat <laughs> and that you need to you know adjust your fingering slightly and your sound. Uh, you know, it, it sounds really, really <laughs> quiet. Well, it's a story of my life, but, <laughs> but I prefer that interesting life and challenge to sticking to one instrument. I would actually find that very bland in comparison. Mm. Um, so, yes, you really have to be alert on your toes, but and it, look, it, pl- it varies from player to player as well. Mm. The next person might say it only takes them two days to adjust. But for me, I find to really gather all the essential information that I need to transfer to that next instrument, I need time. Otherwise, yes, I could be in a performance situation and get completely muddled up. So for specific music, uh, for example, the solo that you performed um, of Jay Sparks' Partita in A minor, how uh, did you go about choosing the instrument for that performance and uh, what's specific about that instrument? Yeah, well, um, I had a good time actually trying to decide what would be the most appropriate instrument to play on. Um, I'm very fortunate to have three instruments that play at the pitch of A equals 392. I've I've developed a bit of a collection over over time. The A392 pitch is a particularly pleasant, lovely, low, delicious pitch that I love to play at. I personally don't really like high notes, which is <laughs> high quality, high pitches. Uh, they kind of really bug me. And actually, the lower the instrument, the more I enjoy playing it. Um, so the particular instrument that I chose 
to play the Bach on uh, this Rottenborg instrument from around 1740 um, was a new one that I kind of acquired and it just had a real real presence um, to it a uh, really nice quality in the low register mm. and a very and sweet upper notes uh, and <laughs> one curse <laughs> that that the Bach Partita has is the final note of the first movement. Now, I didn't play the first movement uh, for this particular series, but the last note is a high A. Now, high A uh, is not a particularly easy note to play on for most Baroque flutes. Uh, only certain models of flutes can actually play it. But this particular instrument that I chose can readily get that as well. So that was part of the decision-making process. Mm, because if you had have been playing that movement, you would have yeah. needed an instrument capable Absolutely. of producing that tone. Yeah, exactly. And uh, then on the question of playing in ensemble performances or, or with Michaela Oberg, obviously, regularly with the Brandenburg, uh, and the notion of blending, do you often choose your instruments together? Is that something you talk about before performances? Michaela and I have often actually paired our instruments. We've made decisions to actually buy the same type of model of instrument and often by the same maker, not always, uh, so that they can match. Because when we have the two flutes in the orchestra playing together, uh, we often have to work fairly closely together in our, in our um, flute parts and we want one to sound pretty pretty similar to the other and um, one not much quieter than the other but actually really matching in volume and quality. And how far does this idea of matching sound go? Uh, you're obviously part of the wind section, a yes. larger section of instruments and, uh, and there are oboes and clarinets sometimes, uh, bassoons quite regularly. How much do you guys as the wind section talk about these sorts of things or how much work do you put in in terms of matching your sounds? Mm. It's quite interesting when we play in a full wind section, you have five instruments that sound extremely different from one another. Mm. So if you have a flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon and horn, for instance, if we're playing classical repertoire, yeah. wow, totally different tone colours, totally different tone colours. So when we have individual solos, we can bring out our individual essence of, of tone colour. But when we are um, doing solos together, say we've got the same note and we have to play together, you kind of have to let go of a little bit of your individuality and uh, sort of, I know it sounds odd, but slightly compromise your own tone mm. to sort of ghost into each other's sound and create a new tone colour. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's some, something you don't often talk about. You just work out as you're playing. Right, so it's something that yeah. you've learned, obviously, throughout the years playing in orchestras, playing in ensembles. That's right. This sounds very similar to the singing I do in choirs because essentially... Often good choir members tend not to be the ones that you can pick out in a, in a 
concert uh, performance, mm. you tend to enjoy a choir as a whole rather than as a group of individual soloists. Yeah, that's true. And the combined sound is always going to be more effective than a group of individuals. And I know that you've got a wealth of chamber music performance behind you as well. And Melissa, you've been responsible for many fabulous programs that have seen the concert stage with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about some of the bugbears with smaller chamber music and when you're playing as part of a chamber ensemble, even though you may be the only flute or the only recorder player, the sorts of things that you do with your sound in, in those instances. Yeah, it's really different again playing in chamber ensembles. Uh, it's different from being a, a wind soloist in an, or- in an orchestra where you have to sort of be a leader. In a chamber ensemble, say with, with other string players and you are the only wind player. Yes, <laughs> sometimes you have to push your own um, side of things, your own your own ideas about um, balance, for instance, is, mm-hmm. a, is a big thing, because when string players get together, they love to make a big sound together. <laughs> they don't often really have to consider the delicacy of, of an instrument like a flute. Um, you know, having said that, a lot of my colleagues are now beginning to understand, (laughs) which is great. Um, But, yeah, look, within chamber ensembles, of course, there's many roles that we all play. Mm. So, for instance, when we're doing a Mozart flute quartet, as the flute player in the flute quartet, you often have the main things to say, the main melodies. Mm. Um, You have to speak as a soloist, but then you will back away occasionally and let the first violin come through or the viola come through mm. uh, and you change roles into an accompanying role so it's this kind of constant constant game and, and you have to be very focused and alert to what's going on in the music and what's going on in the situation now in terms of alertness and the situation context these sorts of words that you're using uh, I have a, a question that I, I, I always love to ask it's when you're on stage Uh, first of all as a soloist, then in a chamber ensemble situation, and then finally as part of a large orchestra. What sort of things do you see and do you hear? What do you hear when you're on stage? Mm -hmm. Look, it just changes so much every time. So if you're part of a wind section up the back, it's it's quite a luxurious position. You, you sort of at the helm and you see the whole orchestra in front of you and the director in front or first violin uh, they're directing. Um, but the problem with that is that you have that distance problem. Mm. And uh, that means that in order to actually play sort of well in time with people that are right up the front and following the director, you in fact actually have to anticipate the beat a little bit. And you also have to sort of be particularly robust and strong as a wind section to come above all of those string players that are in front of you that are Mm. playing usually quite loudly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's the orchestra situation. As a concerto soloist, for instance, you have the absolute luxury of being able to stand next to the cellos and the basses you know which are really the basis of all this music and and if you can hear them and be able to more easily tune to them for instance um 
everything will fit together much better, rhythmically, intonation-wise, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, of course, to your right, then you have uh, the the violins right next to you too, so they're the upper melody line um, next to you. So that's a whole different experience of, of what you hear. And I just love having an earful of the, the bass line. Well, yes, Anthea, <laughs> Cotty, when we were speaking uh, yes. previously... Uh, she was adamant that uh, once she started playing in a Baroque orchestra bass section, uh, she would never go back because it's uh-huh. basically like being at the wheel of the car and driving, putting your foot down on the accelerator. Great analogy. They are driving yeah. that performance yes. and it's not just about the harmony, it's also really no. about the rhythm. Yes. And if they're in time, uh, then everything's yeah. usually, usually hunky-dory. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I have to confess that sometimes the bass section of the choir is not quite as forward to the beat. And yes. and that distance problem that you're talking about, um, I have first-hand experience with that problem. Yeah, yes. yeah. It, it's something you don't realise from an audience's perspective often, uh, that that great distance that you have from one group of musicians or choristers to the next, uh, but it's just part of your job. You're sort of anticipating that distance mm. and Quite i hear the physicists out there screaming yes. but the speed of light works yeah. for, for everyone you're talking about five meters like you know it's not well significant for us <laughs> and as a soloist then which you have been soloist for the brandenburg many times now was there maybe a, a particular concert series that for you was more memorable in terms of the enjoyment of the performance being on stage and and sharing the shining light mm-hmm Look, I really do enjoy playing concertos. It's such a luxury. And it also forces you to become a bit of an actor, especially when you're not naturally an extrovert. <laughs> it is fantastic to have to come forward and become a bit of a director and and um, be heard. You know, the purpose of the concerto soloist is to convey a message and that kind of thing so you have to Mm. have to be bold and you have to have to do it well um one of my favorites i love to share that also with another musician out the front one of my favorite pieces of music is the telemann flute and recorder concerto in e minor which i did with michaela a few years ago uh it's a it's a fantastic piece of music um and just to share that with my colleague uh, was just absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed that. Enjoyed it a lot. You're just about to hear the final presto from Telemann's Concerto for Flute and Recorder in E minor. From the Blazing Baroque Concert Program in 2016, recorded live by ABC Classics at the City Recital Hall, featuring Melissa Farrow on flute, Michaela Oberg on recorder, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. I challenge anyone to find a place to cut this fantastic movement short.
So perhaps we could uh, go to the idea of programming then, and, and how do you go about making decisions about repertoire that you'd like to perform, uh, if it's a chamber or ensemble setting, uh, so as to be able to communicate something with your audience? Where do you start? When you get asked to create a program, <laughs> where does where does Mel Farrow start looking? Do you <laughs> open internet and Google and what uh, do you do? Well, I tend to brainstorm mm. and... Um, I have a lot of kind of ideas for themes floating around in my head a lot of the time. Uh, I like to collect sort of long forgotten gems of repertoire. And I also think about what audiences might really connect to wherever they are. Uh, and often when we bring our music to uh, regional towns and community centres and aged care homes, I tend to like to find music that will really reach them that is either really expressive or really showy or a combination of both and often with a theme that is really quite interesting and every say for our uh, regional tours and we do those annually to have a very contrasting theme to the previous year Mm. so that we're always providing our audiences with something we really haven't done before and demonstrates the versatility of our groups. Um, So we've explored themes, sort of romantic bohemian music, um, uh, women composer Barbara Strozzi and some of those beautiful uh, songs from from that time, and uh, Italian Baroque, French Baroque, English Baroque, all all sorts of ideas. So it's great to bring those really interesting sort of themes to the public. I know you're a true francophile at heart and obviously, you know, flutes and recorders, these instruments, I think suit the French tradition very, very well. Most definitely, yes. I have to say that, yes, French music is closest to my heart. (laughs) I think of anything. And um, it makes sense really when you think of the 
the origins of the instrument becoming a Baroque flute. So we're, we're kind of going back to the, the late 17th century and you have recorders that are known as flute, flute uh, abec or flute douce. Mm. Uh, and then the kind of reconstruction of what was a Renaissance flute, which had no keys, um, to become one of the earliest Baroque flutes with one key, which suddenly meant that it could play chromatically and join the other instruments to play all sorts of music. Mm. Um, And then, of course, this instrument, this beautiful, sweet, soft, responding type of flute, the sideways flute or flute traversière, um, was one of King Louis XIV's favourite instruments, especially for his bedchamber. It (laughs) it lulled him to sleep. Um, Yeah, so I, I think the instrument really responds to the music of that time. And the the name of these instruments, actually, when, when you uh, read the French names of them, it speaks to how that instrument is both played, but also to the sort of style that you might need to approach it. Um, when you're playing a flute à bec, it's a very different sort of technique as opposed to the flute traversière. Mm. Maybe you can uh, elaborate on that difference of sound and, and what mm. you're doing with the instrument that's so different. Sure. Okay, so the flute à bec or recorder just responds instantly. As soon as you blow it, there's a kind of a sharp attack to the sound. Um, One of the different qualities, the main different qualities of the recorder to the flute is that the flute responds with um, varying air speeds to produce a sound. And it's, you know, that concept of blowing across a bottle top to produce a sound... Um, it's a it's a much slower response, uh, and it uses far more air, so it's far less efficient than a recorder mm. is, with, with, which has such a tiny little windway. The flute uses a significant amount of air, um, and so its whole tone quality. And, and physics of the instrument is entirely different. That's why it has such a different sound. And what, uh, with <clears> that <throat> difference, what sort of sounds uh, and what can you do with it? All right, so one of the hardest things to play in a recorder is to play soft. <laughs> <laughs> it is dynamically challenged uh, as opposed to a flute. And I don't mean that uh, <laughs> to be nasty. It just, it just simply is. You have to work on a recorder at creating the illusion of, of soft playing as opposed to loud playing. Yes. Um, you know, the, within recorders, though, there are differences and, and some take a little more air than others and you can develop techniques, very subtle techniques, to creating much dynamic change in other words louds and softs Mm. Uh, whereas with flute um, one of the things you can show off with really well is being able to very slowly get louder and louder and louder and then come away again and and go very soft and that was one of the most expressive qualities that the flute that was written for the flute to play in a lot of French music Uh, for example. And you mentioned Louis, and Versailles Mm. certainly was a hub of activity during the Baroque period. In fact, the hub. Uh, Everyone and anyone in the aristocracy wanted to be the Sun King, but Mm -hmm. Louis XIV 
had uh, the monopoly on many fantastic ideas, uh, especially the centralization of power. What he did was just politically speaking phenomenal. But uh, yes. but what was it about uh, his court that so captivated uh, other European members of the aristocracy to put all this money into music making and dancing? What was it about that time that was so special? So the court of Louis the Fourteenth was just the epitome of everything that is wonderful about the French. Um, so uh, the dance that Lully, uh, the director of music that Louis employed at the court, uh, that Lully and King Louis developed, you know, became the modern form of ballet. And um, that type of dance just took over all of Europe. Dancing masters were... <laughs> where th- their rank was very high in society um, in French courts and also uh, throughout Europe. So these dance masters infiltrated courts throughout Europe and they themselves actually had to learn th- to compose and to play violin. So they themselves had to be <laughs> good musicians and they then taught the middle class and the aristocracy how to do these dances. Yeah. And uh, in terms of then uh, a particular uh, type of dance and the preparation that you had for playing the Bourri Anglaise from Bach's Partida in A minor, now you've talked about the choice of instrument. What other aspects of that performance did you uh, actively think about and prepare? Uh, did you do any research uh, in particular? Or how did you go about readying yourself for that performance? Mm-hmm. It's quite a mystery, this movement. It's not a straightforward bourrée, uh, and I, even though I haven't learned Baroque dance myself, even though I wish I had, <laughs> um, I am fully aware of the steps because I have a, a book of all the dance steps for the various dances. Um, but the bourrée anglaise is quite unusual as a movement. Um, and there's been a lot written about this particular movement, trying to find out exactly where Bach got his unusual ideas from in the music. Um, and because of the name Bourré Anglaise suggests there's some English connection. Some people suggest from the, one of the motives that's used in the music that it could have been a sort of a Scottish uh influenced rhythm that was thrown in through the music so yeah I I have done quite a lot of research on this um, and I've changed my mind on it quite a number of times Um, but this particular for this particular performance I chose to bring out its real sort of uh, French bourre nature and used some inégal to create sort of inequality with with some of the faster notes which also gives it a real fun quality and emphasizing the unusualness of the movement um, so Matheson who was a Johann Matheson who was a, a composer and theorist of the day also wrote about the bourre anglaise as being a particularly sort of eccentric piece or very unusual mm. so I think that and Bach, of course, was a contemporary of Matasson, and I would say that he was really going for the unusual in it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, lots of fun to play. The Bourré has a particular rhythm 
uh, which is very standard in every boray that you get. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but are you able to just demonstrate very briefly? Okay, <laughs> I will try. Uh, I'll do it with clapping. So um, it usually begins with a, a two-note upbeat okay. into a downbeat. So as opposed to... Right, so two very different rhythms, really. Absolutely. So the the expected bore rhythm is this two-note upbeat, da-da-dum, like this. Mm. Um, but this, in fact, sort of does the opposite, really. Um, you also find that this movement, even though it stands alone as a really interesting last movement, it actually ties in the complete partita all together. Uh, it uses elements throughout it, sort of hidden in the music. It's been picked up on that Bach's name is spelt at some point in the music. So you have B flat, A, C, B natural. Yes, it's in, in German. In, in, indeed. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and maybe some of our audience members are aware of this uh, penchant that Bach had of including his name or specific numbers into his music. Um, but the manuscript excerpt that I chose from the manuscript that we, we have of the, the Partita uh, actually shows the B flat A C B natural uh, figure. And it's it's there. I mean, obviously, you mm. have to know what you're looking for. Yes. But that Bach, he was a tricky guy. He and, was and certainly <laughs> was tricky. I wouldn't put it past him. And I, yes. I get a real sense of uh, humour out of a lot of this. You know, you're talking about him playing with the rhythm, having fun, uh, maybe throwing a different style of dance and uh, different elements from other dances also into the one movement, a hodgepodge of lots of things, if you will. Absolutely. There's a lot of unusual elements in the music. And so my job is to bring out those fun elements and uh, convey a really spirited mood that I think the music has. Well, thank you, Mel. It's been a real privilege and pleasure having you with me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's been lots of fun. And I hope everyone's looking forward to uh, re-listening to your performance with renewed gusto and information. Oh, good, yes. Well, I hope that um, uh, what I was saying today has been of some interest and it should shed a new sort of perspective on this music. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.